Ok, parfait. I think that's the most important thing I have to say. You have to find your own question to think about it. Um, if you join a fashionable field, what's your chance? Your chance of publication is high. Your chance of making an impact and solving the problem ahead of others and being distinctive is close to zero. Or, you know, once it feels fashionable and commonly published in Nature or whatever, it's over. Everything will persuade you that that's not the case. Your reviewers, your mentors, your journal editors, your grant-giving people will all try and force you into a fashionable field. But if there was a personal attribute that was important, it was being awkward. I'm not a dominating person. I don't like to boss you around, really. But I will not be bossed around. I will not do what you say. So I was very unwilling to take the advice to do one of the common subjects a nephrologist might investigate. I did want my own problem and they're not so easy to see but there are plenty of them. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Italian I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Sir Peter J. Radcliffe is a director for clinical research at the Francis Crick Institute in London, as well as a distinguished scholar at the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research and the director of the Target Discovery Institute at the University of Oxford. He's best known for his research on oxygen sensing in the cells of animals, a topic his lab has been focusing on for almost his entire career. For his amazing work, he shared the 2019 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Peter's groundbreaking discovery was that oxygen sensing is part of a widely operating system that's present in all animal cells and regulates many other processes, including energy metabolism, cell survival, and cell differentiation. And Peter, when speaking about being a scientist, you've said that, quote, the world is not a very certain place. Anything could happen. And you sort of live for the present largely. And if you try to plan your life, that at a certain stage you'll reach a certain position in the university or you'll solve a certain problem, you'll do poorly. It'll make you unhappy. It's not possible. So, Peter, perhaps we can get started by talking about that. About planning. Well, many aspects of successful behavior are really a compromise between extreme poles, and planning is one of them. If you don't plan your day, of course, life will be chaotic. We have to plan our experimental day in the lab or whatever, and people who do that efficiently are, are often more successful than those who don't. I'm a very inefficient person, actually. But <laughs> okay. life is a chaotic series of uncertainties. So I believe too longer-term planning or too greater obsession with planning your career or even experimental progress. So many uncertainties, if you try to do it, you make yourself poorly and unhappy. And of course, we wouldn't yes. want that. Yeah. Peter, when you say, if you don't plan your day, it'll be chaos. What I hear is day science, right? Because when you have an experiment, it requires an experimental design, it requires planning. And I think when you're referring to the importance of also a lack of planning, that to me resonates with night science, the notion that, that discovery cannot be planned. And I think in the other things that you've said too, it seems as though you're talking about the need for a kind of balance between these two processes. Yeah, personally, I don't think I do switch all that much. I've heard you 
talk about this and other scientists talk about that. The, the people are different. Mm. And I mean, ideas come in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of times. Mm. Obviously, interaction is stimulating and you're more likely, or at least I'm more likely to have ideas if I'm interacting, I'm reading, I'm listening, I'm talking, all sorts of interactions. But, you know, I'm a master of not paying attention. I'm master of the daydream. So I'm very difficult in concentration, probably couldn't do, you know, if we're talking about a rigorous lab day, pitch-petting accurately. That was never a strength and certainly wouldn't be a strength now. Mm. I, I daydream. And if it explains it, I do have some tricks, apart from constantly discussing things over and over again, the same thing over and over again. Yes, In yes. my experience, it's surprising how we've overlooked an obvious possibility. And discussing it with someone else or in a different way will bring that possibility to light. But you might be interested. One thing that I think is important and is a bit of a trick, I won't supervise you one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. okay. If I have a choice, I'll bring in someone else or maybe two other people. I don't want five or six. That's too many. But I want more than two of us. And the reason for that in terms of ideas generation if I'm talking to you one-on-one, -on -one, unless I know you very well, there's a large element of entertainment in the conversation, right? Okay. A large element of social propriety. So a very long gap in our conversation will probably embarrass one of us. So I tend to jump in and keep saying things, pressure of conversation, which I want to relax. And that's why I bring in other people so that I can, without causing you mortal offence, drift off, think about something else, come back I and see. say, oh, excuse me, could you say that again? The lab, I think if you ask the lab, they're driven crazy by me coming back in and so I wasn't listening, could you say that again? But I do <laughs> use that to, uh, so I the see. ideas happen in that way. In a sense, that is my nighttime science. I'm not fully engaged with That's... what I'm supposed to be doing during the day. That's interesting. Yeah. So when you're in a meeting, you quite like actually that there are multiple people that can, in a sense, occupy themselves, allowing you to daydream about the topic. Yeah, the number is important. A large number of people becomes inhibitory. Uh -huh. But two people, some people I know very well, I talk one-on-one, -on -one, but particularly students who are a little bit timid sometimes, I think they're better off in three or four people with that sort of conversation. That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, actually, what I notice when sometimes I speak with, for example, a PhD student and a postdoc about a joint project, my experience is that often it ends up being a discussion between me and the postdoc. Not that I want it that way, but it kind of happens and the student more or less listens. So that's one of the reasons mm. why I feel that more than two people can actually be detrimental. But, but it's interesting that you see it exactly the opposite. I do. One other thing, of course, all of us exaggerate our intelligence and our resolving power. <laughs> we all do that. <laughs> Mainly <Yeah>. me, of course. <laughs> so, you know, I think the problem that students have is quite often they don't have the background knowledge to understand and they don't say. Now, actually, that's not just a problem of students. We all do it. So, in a didactic lecture of 40 minutes, we have them at Oxford, we have them at the Crick. You know, I don't think we really understand them in the main. I, I don't think we achieve good information transfer. And I don't think we admit it when we should. Mm. 
We had a very interesting thing at the Crick. Sir Paul Nurse, who runs the Institute extremely well, mm-hmm. um, was told that the flagship lecture, the Crick lecture, people weren't attending as well they might. So he writes the headmaster a letter, dear group leaders, would you please attend the Crick lectures and would you bring your laboratory members with you, yours, Sir Paul? And that goes mm-hmm. around. And we got one interesting response. A student wrote, she said, dear Sir Paul, I do not attend the Crick lectures. This is because I do not understand the Crick lectures. They're therefore not relevant to my PhD studies, yours, sincerely. So that went, you know, that that caused a bit of consternation. But, you know, Hmm. if I asked you to name the last last four science lectures you attended, um, you might be able to remember the titles, probably can. I said, well, Hmm. could you then write me 200 words, please, on any of the four that you heard and a lot of people would struggle but in the course of 40 minutes you know 100 words a minute they've um, heard at least 4,000 words so the information transfer is not what we think and the overload is not neutral it distracts if I give you 4,000 words it might actually be less information than than 1,000 words so I, I think we're constantly overestimating information transfer. And we do that in our supervision groups. It's one of the reasons the students are so quiet. But none of us have yes. admitted. Yeah. So what's the solution to that? Like, what do you think we should change? Well, if I had the bravery, I'd change the format of a didactic mm-hmm. lecture. I'd stop people using PowerPoint. I'd yes, probably get them exactly. to do a short talk <laughs> format. Um, on a good day, it would be chaired by people like yourselves who would have mm. read up the topic a little bit so that they you know, right. didn't sort of embarrass themselves or others by abject ignorance of the topic. So you'd know a little bit <laughs> mm-hmm. and you'd interrupt me. I'd explain what I was doing about oxygen homeostasis and you know, what the lab's latest um, right thinking was and what I thought the gaps were and you'd stop me and say Peter I didn't think you really made sense there or I don't really believe that piece of evidence you've just trotted out for us right you know that will wake up the audience there's a skill in doing this it should be sufficiently aggressive that you know people can feel a little bit of tension but not so much as to be rude I think we'd learn a lot more in that forum than if I sit up unless I've got a huge amount of confidence I will overload you with data like everyone else. And people will say, I don't know what Peter Ratcliffe said, but he, you know, he's obviously doing a lot of good work. (laughs) You you hear it, don't you? Yeah. The the problem with the current scientific presentation, I feel, is that the goal is to impress rather than to explain. Yeah. Right? They overload the slides with data jumping out of every side and you're just inundated with information, I think you're absolutely right. If we bring back science to a discussion, then it's much more easy for the listeners to engage and to be able to write a 200-word summary afterwards. So I think overall, we overestimate what we can communicate to our colleagues in science by a long way. It's true of our papers as well. But, you know, we got to this topic from thinking about how can you have discussions within the group about scientific projects. So there, you think that if it's more than two people talking, then the information overload becomes less of a problem? I don't really know. I 
guess we'd try to train people to write and to speak accurately. And the analogy I draw is, you know, think of a great author, think of D.H. Lawrence, beautiful writer. You know, he's writing about romance, about human affairs, about abject sadness, about love, about all sorts of things <laughs> the human mind really has an affinity for. But yet sure. he has to portray those characters beautifully, otherwise the story won't make sense. Now, I'm telling you about prolyl hydroxylation and hypoxia-inducible factor. These are not things <laughs> yes. that you're going to find intrinsically interesting. Your mind doesn't leap into full gear when I mention mm. the words. So I have to be especially careful if I'm imparting knowledge on these subjects to paint my characters properly. And time and time again, we see far too much assumed knowledge, which really means that you know, no transfer can take place in what we're talking about because the assumed knowledge was too much. People just mm. don't know the characters, so they can't place them and assess them. I must say, I'm really fascinated by your strategy of giving space in a discussion for the individual participants to kind of lean back and to daydream a little bit about the topic of the discussion while the other two yeah. keep talking. Yeah, I'm trying to bring together two principles, What one of which hmm. you've expounded, that a certain level of detachment is needed for ideas, right? We've said that, and that's your night science. But I've also yeah. said that most people have the experience that interaction generates ideas. So conversation, reading, what have you, generates ideas. So those two things are in conflict, aren't they? We can't be in yes. the night and then talking to our friends. We're in the night alone or we're talking to our friends in the day. At least that's an analogy. So what I'm giving you of what I'm putting forward is there a way of doing both. I'm interacting with you, but I'm partially disengaged. I can see the use of that. Just what Martin and I have argued is that one risk in having a discussion in a larger group is that politics will creep in, that a kind of groupthink will take hold and maybe a voice that wants to give a conflicting idea would hesitate to speak up because everybody reached a consensus about the opposite. Well, that may be true. Of course, everything has its advantages and disadvantages. I should be clear, this is a strategy for having ideas as a group discussion. Um, it's not a good strategy for making good decisions. You'll know that, and that's been said many times before. Committees make bad decisions. They're not a mean of the members' views. They're usually dominated by one or two people, and mm -hmm. the other people spuriously reinforce those views. So yeah. committees are a bad way to make a decision. So, you know, you mentioned before that interactions are really important to have ideas. And, you know, one way of interacting is what we have been talking about, talking with some people of your group, maybe two or three other people. But you mentioned also other kinds of interactions, right? You mentioned reading and listening to people. So... How would you see the role of these different types of interactions in your creative process? It's a mix. Almost any interaction, what we're looking for is variety in life, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. Actually, variety of mood. That's an interesting one. You know, ups and downs in your mood. Many good 
productive scientists a bit cyclothymic. I don't use substances other than coffee, but I do drink a lot of coffee and I do have my mood swings. So on the upside, I have pretty crazy ideas. And um, on the downside, I realize that some of them are crazy. <laughs> so I think constancy is very bad. You know, people who leave very constant lives, very even tempered, perhaps yeah. they're not quite as good at this sort of thing. Yeah, my wife has told me and our friends that she thinks uh, scientists are bipolar, and that's mm. perhaps what makes us scientists. It's partly the job we do, partly the genuine reasons <laughs> for being elected or, yeah. or despondent, which have been proven beyond reasonable doubt before your eyes, yeah. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is I've heard a talk by you where you described how You really got started on this journey into oxygen sensing through a failed control experiment, right? So you had an idea of doing an experiment, but you needed to do a negative control, but then the negative control failed. And that was actually a major discovery, as you realized. That's right. The experiment that you're alluding to was massively naive on my part. I'm not a biochemist. And, you know, to my disappointment for a few minutes when I did the control experiment I could clearly see that the oxygen regulation that was manifest in Frank's hepatoma cells was also seen in the cos cells and that of course disqualified the strategy I'd spent the last couple of months setting up with libraries and transfections and what have you but yes the penny did drop I think it was a matter of minutes the property was there it was doing something else so that was a transforming moment. It did occur out of certainly an unexpected result and for a few minutes an unwanted result. Yeah, so I think it's, it's fascinating and it's something that is probably more frequent in science than we often appreciate. It's fascinating that a result that at first was disappointing, right, because you had a plan to do something and basically the result showed you it's not going to work the way you wanted it to work. But that turned out to be a major discovery. Do you think it's typical? I mean, is that something that happened to you multiple times that you made interesting discoveries by carefully planning an experiment that then didn't turn out the way it was actually planned to turn out? Yes, I do. I think it's most universal in biological science. Some people are very goal-directed, you know, technical tour de force structure of some complicated thing but in terms of you know discovery of pathways or mechanisms it's almost always not what you think it is people underestimate the complexity of darwinian evolution and the absurdity and counter logical way we do everything we do i mean it ought to have been possible to guess that the enzyme that we found to be oxygen sensing and then the prolyl hydroxylase was a prolyl hydroxylase. The collagen enzymes that modify structure collagen have many of the properties that would fit with our system. And people did think about that, that they said, well, you can't have oxygen sensing by a prolyl hydroxylase. It causes the stiffness and structure of collagen. They're different things. You must be something different. But that's not true. You see, Darwinian evolution uses whatever it can for whatever it wants. So it's extremely illogical. And of course, there are all sorts of consequences of this. It means that, in fact, we were able to deduce the enzyme from work in C. elegans, which is different from 
human beings. It's the reason we're able to gain so much information from yeast and things. It's the reason why it's so difficult to make drugs because that's you know mm. it's an attempt at engineering and something that's been tinkered with to the yeah. nth degree. So you don't have to be very clever to do this sort of thing. And actually, I think it's a snag. I think if you're too clever, it's a disadvantage. Yes. If you're too clever, you may be using logic in a particular way in trying to deduce a discovery. And Peter, you just said that natural selection may be acting in many illogical ways, but maybe it's even more broad than Darwinian selection. Maybe the whole discovery process, like what it means to see something new, cannot rely on deduction. And you have to allow for things to be illogical just because you don't know the answer ahead of time. Yeah, and I think an important number or proportion, this has come up in relation to structural prediction, what proportion of the potential ways of producing that structure are actually used in biology in doing that? So what proportion of the potential ways of digesting food are actually used in the enzymes or processes that we do for digestion. And my suspicion is a very small proportion are actually used, which means that we think of all the possibilities and they're nearly all wrong because there's a huge disproportion between the ways something could be done and the way it is done in biology. So you see that logic over and over again. Yeah, you know, Francois Jacob called this the possible and the actual. And, you know, it leads one to think that perhaps this oxygen sensing that you worked on and are working on may, be, may have been worked on by many, many people. And perhaps they were expecting something logical and somehow... Yeah, I've sort of put this in my mainstream lecture. When we've got to the moment where we say it's a 2OG oxygenase, I point out that we worked about 15 years on that before we got to that point. And we and others wrote reviews. And we postulated, I think, that every type of iron-containing enzyme, except that type of enzyme, was proposed <laughs> to do oxygen sensing. You, you'd imagine someone actually knew the answer and was deliberately mm. trying to confuse the field by putting forward alternative <laughs> hypotheses. So all the possibilities put forth were wrong. They were all wrong, yeah. <laughs> Some of them put forward by myself were wrong. <laughs> so another thing that you said before is that you should really find your own question, right? That you shouldn't want to work on the same things that everybody else is working on, but that you should figure out, you know, what is your personal question? So... For you, I think that was certainly true. But do you think that can actually work? I mean, are there so many questions that we can find? Yes, in a word, yes. I think that's the most important thing I have to say. You, you have to find your own question to think about it. Um, if you join a fashionable field, what's your chance? Your chance of publication is high. Your chance of making an impact and solving the problem ahead of others and being distinctive is close to zero. You know, once it feels fashionable and commonly published in Nature or whatever, it's over. Everything will persuade you that that's not the case. Your reviewers, your mentors, your journal editors, your grant-giving people 
they'll all try and force you into a fashionable field. But that is really the whole point of science. And it's actually what I'm doing, bringing, hopefully trying to do, bring clinicians to the crick. They're not there to necessarily or mainly to translate discoveries into medicines. That's a very difficult task that they're not going to do. They're there to bring new ideas to the crick's portfolio. And I mean, how did I get into oxygen sensing? I think mainly life's luck, and I was very lucky. But if there was a personal attribute that was important, it was being awkward. I'm not a <laughs> dominating person. I don't like to boss you around, really. But I will not be bossed around. I will not mm. do what you say. So I was very unwilling to take the advice to do one of the common subjects a nephrologist might investigate. I did want my own problem and they're not so easy to see but there are plenty of them. But isn't that actually the hardest thing to come up with a new question? Yes it is hard. I mean I didn't say it wasn't difficult I said there were a lot of new questions. Yes. It's mm. just not so easy to see them you know it has to be You know, the right sort of granularity that it is a definable problem but they tended to get drawn into ones that other people are looking at because yeah. it helps you get good publications or whatever but that's a nonsense really we set up to do oxygen sensing and the topic was not very popular but you know we knew we were on to something important And how did you know that? Was that just some intuition or could you actually put your finger on saying, if we can solve this, it's going to answer all these other questions or it's going to be relevant for all these other things? I think the only distinction is that it's a discrete problem. And that when you ask me about, you know, how do you find the question? It is that it is a discrete question with an answer. Whenever you see that, you should really stick with it because they're not so easy to get. And we were happy that we had a discrete question to which there would probably be an answer to which we stood a sporting chance of getting that answer. And that's very motivating. And that was what was behind it. Peter, as a clinician scientist, you mentioned at the outset that you don't have a PhD. Does that influence, do you think that the way you do science, perhaps it's humbling or you have a different viewpoint? Well, I trained in the British NHS in the late 70s, early 80s. This was the winter of discontent. Everything didn't work. Mm. At least some of the senior staff held the view that the house physician, that's the most junior doctor, would solve each and every problem as it pertained to their own lives in the NHS. The houseman did everything, irrespective of knowledge. Actually, that was quite a good training. It never struck me that the absence of knowledge in mass spectrometry or, or biochemistry in general, for that matter, was a barrier to working in the field. And mm. that sort of came <laughs> from... In medicine, you have to do what's required. You can't go off and do a course. You know, your patient arrives with disease X or requiring procedure Y. And broadly speaking, you know, it's a time-sensitive issue in acute medicine. So does that mean as a researcher, you were prepared to do things or go into directions for which you didn't have training? Yeah, I think that's a very important thing in science in general, that you shouldn't restrict your problem solving to, you know, what, technology you actually lower you've got to go out and get new things and i think that this was quite important in taking a problem solving approach to the lab as opposed to 
data generation or something else. We were interested in a problem and it was pointed out to me that I didn't have any biochemical knowledge, so it would be difficult, mm. but I ignored that. <laughs> and yeah. it worked out for you. It worked out, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, Peter, we've talked about a lot of things concerning your process of doing science, but are there other things that we haven't talked about that you think we should talk about? Yeah, just one, bravery. So we've talked a bit about Darwin and evolution. We're obviously not fit for the world we live in. We used to live um, 50,000 <laughs> years, a very dangerous environment. We killed each other, raided each other the whole time. You know, most of ancient and fairly recent history is a history of you know, ridiculous warfare. So we have a fear and anxiety. And these properties are very good if you're, you know, they're very important if you're a general leading warfare. They generally don't have them, but they will be very good for military practice. They're very poor for laboratory practice. You know, it's not a very dangerous place. Mm. And um, <laughs> yes. it's not the ideas you have, actually. It's the ideas you make happen. And it's bravery that makes them happen, despite the perceived difficulties the you know all sorts of reasons for not doing an experiment someone's going to do it first you might not succeed in doing it um, you need to be brave and human beings particularly myself but most human beings are not as brave as would be efficient for discovery science they're evolved by darwin and evolution for a dangerous environment whereas And we're suspicious of each other. So you're almost always far better to discuss your data openly with other scientists. They very rarely pinch your ideas in a wholly unproductive way. I mean, maybe they trade, you trade ideas, but um, people are often far too anxious, far too cautious for discovery science. Yeah. And to have this bravery, what are the elements of the atmosphere that are most conducive to that? Is it be part of a big team, do you think? Or, or maybe a smaller team can be braver? I don't know. I mean, this is just I'm putting this out as a mentorship point. You know, think how brave you are and try to be braver. In my case, mm. I'm quite an anxious person. I try not to be anxious. Yeah, I did have an interesting <laughs> conversation about KPIs yesterday with the funders of the Francis Crick Institute. KPI means key performance indicator. And I <laughs> pointed out these things run counterpoise to much of which they were also putting forward There's a lot of interest correctly in, in research culture in how do we think teach scientists to be more confident to be more at ease with the intrinsic uncertainty of what we do because it's not very dangerous they're not going to get killed they probably won't get sacked either but having kpis there you know what is your publication rate what is your impact factor he's trying to measure things which are intrinsically unmeasurable right i think is a very bad thing and there's a lot of it a lot of people are trying to measure things you can't we make knowledge of inestimable value at the point of creation and the value may not yes. Yes. come apparent um if you have knowledge of estimable value I you know a certain worth of it of getting at the outset. That's better done in the commercial sector, you know, organized by money. Right. And we make knowledge which is of inestimable value, which is intrinsically uncertain. And if you apply key performance indicators to that, then you will make people unnecessarily anxious. That's right. I think if someone would have inquired about the key performance indicators of your work 
in the 90s when you were just getting started, you might have been reprimanded. Yeah, it was a common experience. There would be a tour of the laboratory. Sir David Weatherall, who was great supporter, knew we were doing quite interesting things. And he'd put, you know, hypoxia biology laboratory on the list of things that the politicians or funders or whatever would tour around. Inevitably, they got late. And then we don't really need to see the hypoxia biology lab. I mean, that's not very important, that one. So not very we'll, optional. We'll, yeah. we'll miss it off and go and have tea. So, Well, but I do understand that people would like to have key performance indicators because you have to decide who to fund and who you would give the grant to if there's not enough money for everybody and who to hire. So somehow you have to make an estimate of the quality of somebody's science. And I totally agree with you. These typical key performance indicators are not very valuable for that. But it's very difficult. How do you know if somebody's doing interesting science if it's so unmeasurable? Yeah, that's what they told me. They told me not to be so silly. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, well, the first thing that I told them was, yes, you might have to have some of it, but you don't have to keep making the problem worse by dreaming up more indicators and having more reviews. Mm-hmm. I think there are a few things. You know, I think, number one, I would like to know in your institution that each of your group leaders had a discrete problem of the type Mm. we've talked about. I would like to know that they weren't just trying to build a publication list. They were actually trying to solve it. I would like to know how many applicants you got for positions because that's a Mm. barometer. I would like to know that at least part or most of the time in the coffee room you were passionately talking about oxygen sensing and erythropoietin and not what you were going to do or had done the night before. I'd like to know that you're passionate about the science. And I'd probably, you know, if I wanted to know whether you were a good scientist or not, I'd probably ask your friends, you know, in the field, people know whose work is reliable and whose isn't. They might Mm -hmm. not say that, but they know it. And If I was to make a judgment on knowledge, I've said impact doesn't matter, that we can't know what will be impactful. We can know broadly what's correct. That's the only qualification of knowledge that's legitimate, I think. Is it right or wrong? And people in the field will know that. So I think really it's getting back to the fact that science is a social activity. Yes, it's very unfashionable, but I suspect your view would be very, you know, very accurate if I asked you to name people you respected in your field. You could do that, and probably the same people would be recommended by others in the field, and probably you would be correct. It wouldn't necessarily map on to any key performance indicator, though. Well, Peter, over your career, have you noticed that these aspects of what we might call careerism, all kinds of acts that we do just to promote our career, not the science, that there's been a change, that it's becoming more prevalent? I think it's always been this way, but I think it is more prevalent, yes, sadly. And, well, I mean, it's good to know that a person like you that's in your position is thinking this way with the healthy suspicion of the key performance indicators. Yes, and with a fable for discrete problems and passionate talks in the coffee room, I think. That sounds awesome, actually. Well, that's how you would know that we were really trying, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Peter, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for that. Very good to talk. Mm -hmm.